Well, amen. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I got my cast off so I can move my hand a little bit more. And uh, it's nice to be able to move a little bit. I hope, uh, glad you're here today. Apparently we have a lot of people down in sickness and stuff. So if they're watching online, we invite them to open their Bibles to chapter 10 as we as we keep working through Paul's letter to the local church, just make yourself comfortable. We got 22 verses to get through, and so we're going to jump in here and, and get to it. Uh, just wanted to remind you, uh, we have a 180 weekend coming up for our students. The topic of our, of our 180 weekend is going to be worldview. We're going to look at what it means to have a Christian worldview, and we're going to teach our students and those that would come and be a part of that, how, how to think hard about their faith and how to defend it, how to engage people in a conversation using scripture and using the stories of the Bible. And so we're excited about that. I hope you pray for that and invite other students to be a part of it. Uh, if you got chapter 10, just flip back to chapter 8. Let's remind ourselves of the topic because he hasn't left this Topic yet in chapter 8 and verse 1, he said, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the issue at hand that he's been dealing with here, that we've dealt with for some number of weeks, and we're going to finish up next week before he moves on to a different subject in the life of the church. Is this issue, is it okay for Christians to go into a pagan temple and, and actually sit down and eat food that was offered to idols? That was the core issue, though a lot of things that this meat might affect. And the point thus far, and I hope you've gotten it, is that we should not cause those young in the faith to stumble no matter whether we have a problem with something or not. Remember, even in chapter 8 and verse 1, we see that knowledge without love is dangerous. Our, in other words, our freedoms, our own conscience of what is right, what is wrong, what is a problem, what is not a problem. If we lay a stumbling block, literally a a log across the road in someone else's life, we sin against Christ. And so, Paul in chapter 9, if you, if you look at that, you remember from last week, Paul uses himself as an illustration of what he had the right to do, but what he willingly sacrificed for the good that, some, that all might be saved and all might grow in their salvation and their faith. In chapter 10, this is where we are today, he he brings a second point. This is critical. Two points he's making during this whole, he's building his case. That it's not simply that we should not cause those young in the faith to stumble. The issue is those who think they're mature in the faith are not as mature as they think they are because they are in danger of stepping into idolatry themselves. And in, in a sense, in a real sense, they already have. May not dare today, trusting in the faithfulness of God, we, as the body of Christ, must flee idolatry. We see that this is a covenant thing. This is a community that flees and flees together. 
Now, if I had a picture today, if I brought a picture up and I said, this is an authentic picture. This is an authentic Van Gogh picture. I looked up one. It was a picture of a, called The Starry Night. And I thought to myself, I think Rachel could probably paint better than that. But I guess it's not just the painting. It's who paints it that really matters, you know. So what if I just stood up here and said, hey, this is a Van Gogh. What would you say? So where, what basis do you have to say that that's authentic? I know you say it is, but have you had the authenticity checked? Do you have anything to verify that this is authentic? Brothers and sisters, this is the big picture going on within the local church. What authenticates community? This is, this is core. This is key. This helps understand why many places and communities are so unhealthy. Is it mere knowledge of Christ? Mere knowledge of each other that authenticates community? Truly, we relish in the fact that that we know Christ, that we know the story. Much of the text today is about that. If you don't know the story of the Old Testament, you're going to struggle. But here's here's what he's getting at. It is communion with Christ and communion with each other that authenticates community. This is an absolute truth that communion is what authenticates community, whether it's the church or the hell's angels. It is their communion with each other that authenticates it. He's concerned that there are those in the church that share knowledge about Christ, but still pull up to the table of idolatry themselves. He says these two things don't mix, and so he reminds them of something. Sobering reminder with the faithfulness of God. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, let's name him today, for the text does, is the Lord of history. Now finish my statement, I bet you can finish it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned what? To repeat it. This is why, he's, why he goes into history today. How many of you like history? As you get older, I think you like it more. You see, if you know history, we are all a little concerned because the last election cycle, a socialist guy didn't have a chance. And now he might just be a democratic running person. You see, why does that bother people? Because we know history. of What happens when socialism arises in a society. History matters. That's what he's saying here. History matters because if you don't learn from history, you will repeat the mistakes of the generation before you. So look with me at verse 1. He says, notice this as you read the text. Notice repeated words. Repeated words are important. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Notice the word all. He's making his point that the, God's people, Israel, were all of them, were the community of faith. They're the community, God's people. That they were baptized. You see that word? That's an analogy. They were baptized into Moses just as the Corinthians were baptized into Christ. He led them. He was, he was pointing to Christ. He was a type. They pointed to Christ. The point here, notice this, is divine guidance. You notice, you remember the clouds, Exodus 13? A cloud by day, 
pillar of fire by night. They all passed through the sea, Exodus 14. They were all a part of the community, and they all went through this. They were all following Moses, God's divine guidance. We'll see this before them and behind them. This is important, brothers and sisters, what Paul is teaching us here. Do you see that our fathers, that the New Testament church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, that our spiritual forefathers were their Old Testament covenant people. We, are, we learn from them, we look to them, we are connected to them. And they all received grace. This is the point. Verse 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, he's not saying that the Old Testament, that, the, that this was the, the manna and the water from the rock is some kind of Old Testament sacrament. That's not his point. His point is that these were spiritual. Do you see that word? The word spiritual means derived from the spirit. That is... These gifts were not natural. They were supernatural coming from God through the Spirit. These were spiritual gifts in that sense. They were grace gifts. Here's the point. They were all God's covenant people. God led them all and they all experienced God's grace. He faithfully guided them. He faithfully provided for them. I do want you to look at Psalm 78. Gives you sort of a little summary. You see, the psalmist thought history was important. He wrote songs about history. Psalm 78, look at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. And made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and at night with a fiery light. Verse 15, he split rocks in wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made the streams come out of rocks and caused waters to flow down like a river. In other words, when that, that rock gave water, it just didn't sprinkle out. God provided for his people. Look down at verse 25. Man ate the bread of of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. This is the point. They experienced it. Look at verse 4. This ought to make the Christian, as you read this story of Old Testament history, just leap. Remember, we say to everybody that all of Scripture is about Jesus, right? Look at verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. Notice your Bible should have the rock, capital R, that followed them, and the rock was who? Christ. Do you see that? This is a clear teaching of Scripture. John chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus Christ led the Old Testament believers 
And he leads us. Jude 5 says it this way. Now I want to remind you, although you were fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. Jude basically summarized in one verse what Paul spends his time talking about. Jesus was the source of the grace that all the Israelites experienced. And in Revelation 22, we read this in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, and the leaves and the trees were the healing for the nations. Don't lose the point in the imagery. Our Jesus was the provider and guider from the beginning, and he will be it in eternity. He is our everything. They experienced it. We experienced it. Nevertheless, this is his warning, verse 5. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul exercised a, a little bit of an understatement here. This is a strong adversative here, nevertheless. We read it in Psalm 78, in that song that we just got through reading before, at the end, 20, in verse 29, he says this, And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. He said, Most of them did not enter into the land of promise. That was an understatement. Remember, there was only two, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of that generation, brothers and sisters, perished. Chapter 9, verse 24, we looked at that last week. Many people run. Only one gets the prize. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history, and so we must learn from history's example. That's our second point. The example of history. Look at verse 6. It says, these things... Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. All of these things, everything of redemptive history culminates in the person and the work of Christ through His church now. We learn from it because, listen, our God's character does not change. Paul wants them to get the point here. Very sobering point. When self-confidence leads to sin, God will judge. He gives them four interconnected sins. Your note says sins. You might want to write up above that. They're interconnected. They're like dominoes. They're, they're inseparable. The first is idolatry. Their presumption and overconfidence had led these mature people into a dangerous place. And he said, don't you remember the children of Israel? Exodus 32, do you remember what happened? Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments. And he was up there longer than he was supposed to. Do you remember what they did? They reverted back to their Egyptian paganism. They set up a golden calf. And you remember 
They ate and they drank and they rose up to play. That play is erotic in nature. But do you remember? Verse 5 and Exodus 32 if you want to look at it. That's not what the Israelites called it. The most dangerous person is the self-deceived person. They were self-deceived. Do you remember what they said? When Aaron saw this, verse 5 in Exodus 32, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. So they brought in and made this, this idol out of a calf and then said, this is us really worshiping the Lord. We're really worshiping Yahweh. The clear command you cannot take part in cult, cultic idolatry and call it holy. Listen, here's his point. These things are not neutral. They're not neutral. You see, they were thinking that they could go and eat at the pagan temple. And that that was neutral for them. They believed in one God. They didn't believe those idols or anything. And he said, well, neither did the Israelites do you remember what happened? Their idolatry didn't stop with idolatry. As you remember, they rose up to plague, which means the second sin interconnected is sexual license. Verse 8, we do not indulge in sexual immorality, in pornea, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a day. Now, Paul in the Old Testament sometimes speaks in round numbers. Don't get tripped up by that. It's, you see 23 and 24. We, we see this in Numbers 25. We're, we're not going to read all of it, but we have the God's people that began to, what the verse 1 calls, and this is just the language of the Bible, to whore with the daughters of Moab. That means that idolatry leads always somewhere else. The result in verse 9 was Numbers said 24,000 fell dead with a plague because idolatry led to immorality and God always judges it. Verse 9. What is all of this? <laughs> what is all of this discussion, brothers and sisters? You've had it with Christians. Well, where's the line, pastor? Is this right or is this wrong? I mean, what are they saying? When somebody asks you that, how close can I get to the line? Listen, beloved, that's testing Christ. That's what he says. That brings judgment. That's what this word means in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some did and were destroyed by serpents. This putting to the test means to see how far you can go as it is to God. How far can I push it? He said, don't you remember what happens? Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord to the test as you tested him in Mosul. Do you remember? You remember as parents, when, you, when your child gets disciplined and you, and you look at them and say, You remember what happened last time you did that? Numbers 21 tells the story of a grumbling people that begin to die. Do you remember the bronze serpent? These serpents come in and they start biting God's people and God's people start, start dying. I can't snap that finger yet. I can almost do it. 
They start dying. You remember what Jesus said. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God's judgment fell on his people because they were seeing how far they could push Jesus. Remember, it was he that was leading them. This is inseparably to verse 10. It was a testing through grumbling. That's the fourth one. Nor grumbling as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This grumbling is not us saying, oh, my, back, my back hurts this morning because it's been raining. That's, that's not his point. This is grumbling in a rebellious spirit. It is grumbling against Jesus. It is at his heart ungrateful. How dare God not wield his power for me? He doesn't wield it the way I want to, so I'm going to put him on the judgment seat, and I will question him. Grumbling, the point, the New Testament point, God has and will judge his people if they fail to heed the gospel. Now these things, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, why? For our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come, everything has come to pass. Christ is here. He has lived, he has died, he has ascended, he is coming again. All of these things that has happened up to this point is for us so that we may know how to trust in God's faithfulness and how to uh, see idolatry for what it is. It's destructive. And so he now leans forward in verse 12. Therefore, you know, in other words, pay attention. Let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest he fall. Now he's driving into this second point. This is the central aspect of this section. You're not as mature and safe as you thought you was. That's what he's saying to these people who thought that they were standing firm. They thought they could go into enemy territory with no effect. He said... You're in danger. Now, it's the two ways these folks could be in danger. The Bible does not mean what it does not say. Paul's not saying these people could lose their salvation. Listen, brothers and sisters, you and me can fall into sin before we get to the car today. We can fall. Sin is dangerous, sin is destructive, sin has consequences. But this can also, and Scripture is clear, that there are those who profess to be believers that may, through falling into idolatry, prove themselves not to be. This is a sobering warning for the church of God that idolatry is dangerous. And I love what he's doing because he, almost as if he can see us answering questions, saying, well, what? Okay, well, what's the implication of that? Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you may endure. This almost seems out of place, doesn't it? It's like, why is that there? It is there to help all of us who are tempted to idolatry. We're all tempted towards it to help us understand. This is common to man. 
This temptation that they are going through right now, it's not superhuman or extraordinary temptation. It's common. In other words, we experience the same level of pressure to pull up to the table of idolatry that they did. This is common. It is our problem, brothers and sisters. Here's the faithfulness of God that we've been singing about today. Do you see it? God is faithful to his people. This is good news in the midst of what we just read, isn't it? All of this has happened and learn from it, be warned by it. But God will not desert his people. First, this is common. Second, God is faithful. And listen, don't lay temptation at the foot of Jesus. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. We are tempted by the sin in our own flesh and our own desires. God uses it like he, and we see that. But God is faithful to his people. God is the rock. Listen. If you believe the Old Testament is full of God's anger and wrath, you have not read the Old Testament. God's Testament is about a faithful God who pursues, He leads them and He follows them despite the fact that they are constantly stepping out on their Yahweh. The Old Testament is about a faithful God who covenants Himself with the people and never leaves them. Even His Judgment is mercy. The temptation of idolatry and sexual immorality and grumbling are real. But God is faithful to deliver his people. Therefore, let us learn the lesson from history. Here's what he's saying. And there's not a least bit of disconnection here. Look at history and be learned and learn from it. God is faithful. He will deliver His people from temptation. He gives us His Spirit. What comes next in verse 14? Therefore, my beloved, flee. (laughs) You see that? Flee. And, And just so you know, verse 14, this is important. Paul's not shame slapping the Corinthians. Do you see that? My beloved... He's literally saying, because of this, those loved by God. God loves you. That's what he's saying. The Corinthians, you know how messed up they were? He's saying, God loves you. Run from idolatry. This is tender, but it is clear. This is an imperative. That idolatry is not to be toyed with. Fleeing involves avoiding and keeping your distance. It's it's like a a dog you know is going to attack you. You avoid them and you keep your distance from him. You best stay over there. This is what we see idolatry. It is dangerous. It is destructive. There's There's another lesson here. This is why we have the table set up today. Paul brings the Lord's Supper in as an illustration of covenant participation and covenant allegiance. And brothers and sisters, I am sorry that the church of Jesus Christ over the last 50 and 100 years has almost completely lost the word covenant. 
But please try to think about it in the terms of your marriage. Whether you are married or have been married or long to be married, please try to understand the word covenant in line with that. We covenantly participate. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in in the body of Christ? So what is he saying? He's using this, brothers and sisters. Think about this. Think about it. If there is a the table here, the Lord's table, that is symbolic of our bringing into, into covenant relationship with Christ and with His people, another table. It is the pagan table. It is the table of idolatry that says... The world has all I need, and I will pull up to that table, and I will give my worship, my time, my talent, my desire, my everything to that. He's saying, reality, there's two tables in your life. There's two tables. The temptation is not to abandon one for the other, but to think that you can pull up to both. And so he uses this picture. He pulls us into communion to say in communion we participate. There is a koinonia. The NSB calls it a sharing. The New King James calls it a communion of. The cup of blessing. Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Is it not a communion with Answer, his illustration depends on it. It is with him and each other. Brothers and sisters, this is what 1 John teaches us. Verses 3 to 7, I'm not going to read it. It's in your notes, I think. Believers experience a precious fellowship, a precious sharing with Christ and his church with one another. These are the privilege. Listen, this is why we fence the table This is why I say don't come to the table if you're not a believer. Because there are some things that are reserved for family. There are some things that unbelievers just cannot participate in. They can't have communion with it. It is precious. It is sacred. It is given to us as a gift by Christ. It is the cup of blessing. Just what he calls it. This takes us to the Passover Do you remember when God's people are told to celebrate the Passover, what they are doing? They're coming to this Passover and they are remembering, I was a slave. God delivered us. And He revealed Himself to us. And now we get the privilege of following Him and He cares for us. And we give Him thanks for it. That was what the Passover was about. And so, brothers and sisters, when we come to the table, listen. This is not a cup of blessing that the people come and receive a blessing when they drink. It's not the purpose. The cup of blessing is a cup of thanksgiving that is given to God by the people who, when they drink it, offer their thanksgiving and their renewed covenant participation and allegiance to Him. And to him alone. This is what he is saying. This is what the early church understood. They remember Acts 2 42, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of prayers, 
of bread into prayers, brothers and sisters. How does Acts 2.42 work into your daily planner? Verse 17, he drives it home. Talk to Aaron about this. We miss it because we have these individual pieces. Listen to what he's saying. Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake the one bread. Now, he could have said that many different ways. You see, all through Christian history, there was a common loaf. It wasn't individual pieces like this. It was a common loaf. There was one bread. We all take a piece off of the one bread. We are reminded That we are one with each other and Christ because we are united in His body and blood. That's why there was one bread and a common cup. Reminds us of the fact that not only are we one in Christ, but we are one with each other. And this demands covenant allegiance. A covenant devotion. A covenant faithfulness. And this is where he, He gets to it, brothers and sisters. Just where he draws the parallel. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants, communing with in the altar. What do I imply then? Yet the food offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything? No. That what pagans sacrifice, listen, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He is simply saying very clearly that these cultic meals are in fact worship. They are a thanksgiving to an idol that is not an idol. It is a demon. That it doesn't matter what the pagans think. There is no God but one. And so if they offer a sacrifice to something that is not a God, what exactly is it? He said, you think it's nothing. It is in fact demonic. You see his point. One shows their master by to whom they serve. One shows their allegiance by whom in which he worship participates. He's saying, you cannot, but many of you are, is what he's telling them. That you are in fact coming to pull up to the Lord's table, and then you're on Monday going up to the pagan's table, and you think that it's nothing because it's not God. He said, it is something, it's demonic. And it is a dangerous thing to show allegiance to the demonic. He's saying you cannot have two masters. And listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit today. Not not trying to be. Trying to be your pastor. Okay? Hold what I say in the light of God's Word. But brothers and sisters, it does no good. For us to sit here and talk about this and and all we say is, well, praise the Lord, we don't have an idol's temple to pull up to anymore. Oh, we have temples to pull up to. The Lord cares who we have communion with, brothers and sisters. We have been bought with a price. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that this meditation that is going around as good for your health And good for your stress. Do you know where it stems from, brothers and sisters? It is Eastern religion. It is Eastern mysticism. Whereby it is their means of salvation. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? If we understood worldviews, we would understand it. 
That, that meditation is simply a means of their salvation whereby they come one with an impersonal force that they believe that they are a part of. And we cannot as Christians pull up to a table of that which is wicked because it is not neutral in the eyes of God. It is either worshiping Jesus Christ or it is worshiping the demonic. And you cannot come into a room full of people that are worshiping at a demonic table and think you're strong enough to stay neutral. That's what I say. Brothers and sisters, I wish it was just that easy. But I do want you to realize something, all of us. We need to test what we're a part of. When someone put, when, a, when a belief system or organization has a spiritual component and Jesus Christ is not the center, we must flee from it. Period. If it's not of Christ, it's of the devil. If it demands our worship and our allegiance, we give that only to one. And his name is Jesus. And I wish, brothers and sisters, it was that simple. But idolatry is not that simple, is it? We have more communion, brothers and sisters, today in our culture with our favorite football teams or our child's gymnastic teams than we do the body of Christ. And listen, I am saying this because I love you. If that's true today, we have fallen into idolatry or we're on the precipice of danger about to fall in. That's what he's telling the people. We're not as strong as we think we are. And brothers and sisters, we are creating idolaters by babysitting our children with video games for hours and thinking that won't have an effect on who they worship. Worship is to ascribe value and ultimate meaning to something. And anything can be an idol and everything has been. Timothy Keller said that and it's true. We all worship, brothers and sisters. <laughs> we all worship. We are worshipers. Whether we believe in God or not. It's the warning for us children that we love. If I... Don't take heed. And I'm standing on the precipice of idolatry. Where will my children stand? Ephesians 6.12 says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And Paul was warning those who think they were mature, be careful whose table you pull up to because it may be a demonic table. He ends in verse 21 and 22, which is not really the end. It's the end for us this week. We'll pick it up next week. Of this, God is jealous. Covenant jealousy is a lesson He wants us to learn today. Covenant jealousy Next somebody says, let me just read it, so it's not my words. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The warning is clear. If you pull up to both tables in your life, God loves you. But God is jealous that his effect, your affections be centered on him and him alone. And you say, you know, I don't really like that quality. I don't like that attribute. Can I ask you something? I don't care whether you're married or not. 
If you were married, or if you are married, do you desire your spouse to be faithful? That's a question that goes, got an obvious answer, isn't it? Listen, how would you feel if, if you found out today that they were unfaithful? Allow yourself to feel that. The story of history of God's people is though he set their affections on them, they, they were constantly committing spiritual adultery. And God was jealous because he alone is worthy of our affections and our faithfulness. God is faithful. But the picture of the Old Testament points is that a husband who loves his bride and desires for her to be faithful. So two points today, and I hope you see them. We live in a community with each other. And we should never put in each other away. We are connected. We are covenanted together by the blood and body of Christ. And we have an impact on each other's life. And listen today, second point. I'm trying to make it as practical as I can. We as a community must not make any good thing a bad thing by making it an ultimate thing. So what today? A simple question that we can discuss in our growth groups. Am I trusting in God's faithfulness? Or am I presuming on God's grace? You know what I have to say? I want to be. I want to trust in God's faithfulness. But I often presume on His grace. Amen? Lamentations 3, 19. Let's begin at verse 19. It says, Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the warm word and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So, brothers and sisters, this is our response today. We have set the tables. And just a minute as we worship, we're going to sing three songs. And you're going to come anytime during those three songs. You're going to take your elements. You're going to go back to your seat. And you're going to worship the Lord. You're going to take the elements as you sing. But I just wanted us, before we stand up, I just want us to focus on these. Basically, the, we are going to sing the application to each other. But I want you to remind yourself of something as you sing. Our first song is called, Jesus is Better. It is going to remind us to remind ourselves daily of the cross. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Do you see the tension in that song? I believe, Lord, by help by my unbelief. I want to trust in your faithfulness, but I often presume on your grace. Jesus is better. In, in the victory, Jesus is better. In comfort, Jesus is better. Even in all riches, Jesus is better. Then we will sing... Oh, great God. I love this section right here, this promise that God will give us the grace we need. Listen.
to bring glory to his name. Help me now to live a life that depends on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven. Listen, this is my prayer. Glorify your name through me. Oh, what would God do if God's people said, do with me as you will, but just bring glory to your name through my life. I'm going to remind ourselves of that today. I love this last song, Mike. I can remember getting ready to plant this church scared to death. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You are my one defense. You're my righteousness. I need you. And above all, brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us today who you are. You are a chosen race. You, brothers and sisters, are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as an evildoer that you may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for us to come together and remind ourselves that it is the body and the blood of Christ that had given us both redemption and adoption into a family. We remember that. We don't come to the table to be blessed. We come to the table to give thanks because He has done for us what we can never do for ourselves and we don't have to because it is finished. Amen. So brothers and sisters, let us bow for prayer. And then let us stand and remind ourselves through song. And at your leisure, come to the tables and take your elements back with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we now come to you, Lord. You have invited us. You have told us, Lord. To do this until you come. To come to the, your table and to remember. That we Lord. Were captive in our sin. Dead. Enslaved. Having ears we could not hear. Having eyes we could not see. But you made us alive in Christ. For by grace we have been saved. And so, God, we get to come to the table today and reminded that you have made us one together. 
and remind us it was your own son who took our judgment so that we may be forgiven and redeemed and adopted. So Lord, we want to remind ourselves of these things. As we sing to you, Lord, receive our worship. As we come to the table, Lord, receive our thanks and our grateful hearts and our renewal of our devotion and allegiance to you and to you alone. Be glorified in our worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.